We're glad you've connected with us online. This is Pastor Look Mike forward to the opportunity to see you in person. You're about to hear one of our Sunday morning messages. We hope you're more passionate about gathering from the Bible. Our Savior, and pray Jesus that Christ. this message makes Every an Sunday morning at 9.30 at Beaver Creek Cinemas in the peak of good living, Apex, North Carolina. That's great. Those who didn't hear, down front. Oh, yeah, great, of course. So imagine a year ago, there we were prepping for 500. We worked with all the churches throughout the area, have a free medical clinic to remind people, yes, this is who Christ is, but we wanted to share with the community that passion. And here we are at 501, and we're just, man, I'm so glad Pastor didn't make us do a 501 celebration. I did but I share with you, isn't it intriguing how we can get lulled into, oh yeah, Reformation, oh, 501. No, 501 is not probably a number most of you celebrate. Now, when you think back, for some of you, you think Reformation, you go, yay, the 95 Theses. I will ask the same thing I ask of congregations I visited. Now, hopefully some of you remember this. Does anyone remember any single one of them? Yeah, I know, it's just really what's sad. Luther's like, yay, 95 Theses. And you ask the Luther, do you know any? I was at a pastor's conference, and we were gathered, like, prepping, get ready, prepping medical kits for a Reformation event. A table of pastors. Their response when I asked them to write down a huge sheet, I had rid of a huge sheet, was number one, then some, and then 95. I'm like, well done, guys. Well, well done. Well, the first, just to at least walk away with the first, that when Christ said that life should be one of repentance, he meant your whole life should be one of repentance. Turns out God actually wanted us to live a life of repentance. That's what Luther was hoping, just that people would repent and turn back to God. So here we are, 501, but we want to ask the question, who is Jesus? That's been our theme carrying forward. So if you have your Bible, open up to Hebrews 5, verse 7, and we think about who is Jesus, we start to get into Jesus' life here in Hebrews 5, talking about his, his days of flesh, is the way the writer Hebrews will record. So verse 5 refers to it in this way. Hebrews 5, verse 7, in the days of his flesh, that is Jesus taking on flesh. Remember, Jesus, as Hebrews opens in chapter 1, told us Jesus was where at creation. He was, he's there. So Hebrews is making it very clear, Jesus has always been, but now in the days of his flesh, meaning his earthly incarnation. Uh, this is, if you think, Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, this is second article stuff, Jesus coming in the flesh. So in the days of his flesh, Jesus offers up prayers and supplications. With loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Now you have to start getting your mind together with this. You have Jesus, who is God in the flesh, who is communicating prayers and supplications to the Father. So you have God doing what? Throughout his earthly life, he is communicating with God. That the Trinity is staying in full communion. So when you want an example of what's community look like, that's what the Trinity gives to you. That for a community to function, you actually have to do what with your neighbor? And you actually do have to communicate. You'd be amazed how much more fun you have with your neighbors if you've ever spoken to them. <coughs> it's very hard to have fun with neighbors you've never met. I mean, somehow you could have like this weird, like you each fly the same balloon on a day, and you're excited by that. But like when you talk to them, it unlocks doors. So Jesus is having this communication with the Father. And as he walked on earth, he's in constant communication with the Father. We have images of him in the garden. Many times he cools off in the morning and goes to a quiet place to communicate. Uh, he is talking and always keeping that open. Now at the end it says, and he heard because of his reference, that Jesus was without sin. He had an honor for the Father, a respect, a rapport. 
Because this is the Trinity communicating. Verse 8 takes us further. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Because remember, in his life, when we talk about who is Jesus, he actually takes on a whole lot of challenge. So from creation, if we think back to last week when we were talking about Hebrews uh, telling us all the way back to Adam and Eve, yes, Jesus is there, but when he steps into his incarnation, he starts to take on something most of you don't always appreciate joints and ears and a mouth and a stomach. Now, for some of you, had a great practice, and you're fine. Others of you, right now, as I preach, you're thinking what? Man, why did I skip breakfast? I, I mean, I know that. It's an earthly thing. Jesus has these things, and he goes through, he learns obedience through what he suffered, meaning what he actually did. He took on flesh. Remember, he chose to do that for you. And he has obedience because the Father said do this, and he all throughout his life, he does this. Now, it's a process, and every day uh, you get this alignment in Jesus' life that he's following the Father. Hebrews 2, not Hebrews, Luke 2, you know this passage. You don't have to turn, I'll share it with you, but Luke 2, 52 tells you a picture of Jesus' growth. Luke 2, 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. That's Luke's narrative that just takes you, that's his childhood. Luke gives you his childhood, that's kind of it. He grows in stature and in favor. With God and man. Look back to Hebrews 5.8. He's what? He learned obedience through what he suffered. So he's a son, but he's learning obedience because he does what the Father asks. Now, here we are at 5.01. Everyone knows zero of the 95 theses now. So we've really, we've really learned that. And we're looking at a theme of maturity. And in Hebrews here, it talks about milk and solid food. Now, the unique thing in chapter 5, the listeners are told, uh, you need more milk because you're not ready for solid food because you don't even understand the basics. Now, think how many times someone's like, yeah, Luther, 95 pieces, let's get them, woo -hoo! Remember, the challenge that Luther faced is during the Reformation. Um, when he asked people, do you know why you're so like, excited about the Reformation, what this is about? You know what they said? We don't know, we're just doing stuff. Which is why he wrote the small catechism. He wanted people to actually understand the principles. Because people get excited about overthrowing people they don't know anything about. Quick, let's just overthrow because they're bad. Do you know why? No, but 700 people walked in front of my house and all said, do you want to join? So they joined. We just get excited about things we don't always know because, well, there's a lot of people excited. So it's time for us to get a little bit more mature in our faith. So Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9 and 10. Let's find out if you guys know this next one. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal life to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Anyone go to college with Melchizedek? Anyone? <laughs> we don't have that inroad, so we're going to have to get to Melchizedek another way. Melchizedek is a, a priest who serves in the kingdom called Salem. Now, Salem is actually a kingdom whose name means, it follows similar to the Hebrew word, uh, shalom, which is peace. Salem means peace. So his kingdom is peace. Uh, and Melchizedek means king. Melech is king. And then Zedek is righteous. He's a king of righteousness who is going to be in a place of peace. Now here's the interesting thing about Melchizedek that makes him interesting. He isn't in what family tree? Yes, not in Levi. He's not a Levite. So when Hebrews tells you that Jesus is going to be in the order of Melchizedek, it tells you this priest isn't coming through the priestly class. He's coming through the world. 
And he's going to bring a kingdom of righteousness that lives in a place called peace. So your king isn't going to come through all the sacrificial systems and everything else that you knew. He's coming differently. Now, most of you just heard Melchizedek and you thought, I don't, I don't know anybody Melchizedek. And you just read the next verse. See, Hebrews is telling you Jesus will be different. When you think about who is Jesus, this verse is huge. He's not going to be like Aaron. He's not going to come and tell you you have to offer this many sheep or this many goats. That's not what he does. He comes bringing righteousness and peace, and he comes outside of the house of Levi. He's a priest, but he's going to come in a different order like Melchizedek. Now, some of you probably wonder, well, what in the world? I never, Melchizedek, I only hear him, you know, just today. This is new to me. Who's Melchizedek? How many of you heard of Abraham? Father Abraham. All right, so we're good. Now, how many of you still heard of Abram? Still good? Okay. This is just Abraham before his name changed. Do you know who is the priest that presides over when Abram is actually told that he would be the father of many nations and when he's equipped? Melchizedek. So you've got the front end of the promise is Melchizedek, that Abraham's going to be there. So the promise is coming, and then guess who's the capstone of the promise? Oh, come on. You guys all know this. It's a safe one. Jesus. So Melchizedek's the front, and Jesus is the back. These are your bookends of the priesthood. Aaron's in the middle just trying to get you there. Because they built this structure to get you there. So this is a very powerful who is Jesus moment. Melchizedek, your Jesus follows in the line of a priest who's going to be a king of righteousness in a place and a land of peace. That's what Jesus wanted you to realize. So when the Israelites are gathered in Jerusalem and struggling with who is Jesus, and they want him to come and just overthrow the kingdom, they should have thought what? Oh, that's not him. He's in the order of Melchizedek. Now, somebody like, oh, but Hebrews wasn't written. I, I'm just sharing with you. When you look back at it, you wonder, why did they not see it? Because it was a different order. Jesus was a different type of king. He was a different type of priest. But he was following through on the promise of what God was going to do. Chapter 4 that we looked at last week of Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So again, Melchizedek is actually one who comes in an earthly kind of setting rather than this ironic Levi-Levi setting that has its own set off to the side, which meant it shouldn't surprise you that when Jesus came, who does he dine with? Tax collectors and sinners. He's dealing with earthly stuff. There's nothing wrong with the Levites. Trust me. Great group of people. I'm all in. Like them. They did wonderful things. I'm just showing you Jesus does it differently. He's a high priest who can sympathize, who's been in the weeds and the muck and the mire where you've been. He wasn't set off there. So when they see him, and some of the Israelites, the people who are dealing with the Levite, they're looking for him to be a priest like that, they'd say, what are you doing with tax collectors and sinners? Get where? Get back in the temple and stay where you're supposed to stay, and we'll come to you, and you can teach us there, because that's, that's the relationship we have. Jesus goes, that's not the relationship I want with you. I want to be where you are. I want to step into your life. I want to be exactly where you don't want him. You follow what I'm saying? <laughs> There's some stuff that happened in our life we don't really want Jesus to have a front row seat for that. Jesus goes, I'm there. We have some stuff that we're not glad we've thought. We have some stuff we're not glad we've said. Jesus goes, I'm there. I'm out in front. Look at verse 11. About this, we have much to say. And it's hard to explain since you have to be... Get it out, right? About this, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. This is the whole milk solid food thing. 
He's trying to describe who Jesus is as a priest in the order of Melchizedek, but people are all like, no, we can't think that deep. Jesus is just hug friend Jesus. That's true. Jesus does want to hug you, wants to be your friend, wants to be there for you, but there's so much more to him. To understand who Jesus is, you can see it through the narrative of the entire scriptures. Verse 12, for though by this time you ought to be teachers. Remember, this is his audience. So he's writing that you become dull hearing, which is unique, is it not? Because the message that was given in Deuteronomy 6.4, we looked at last week, the great Shema was put on the front list uh, of those who are in uh, following orthodox traditions of, of Judaism. The Israelites is, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. The first and primary thing they're told to do is to listen. So when verse 11 tells you you become dull of hearing, you've got, through the writer of the Hebrews, a reminder, why'd you stop listening? You got so busy doing, you stopped listening. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracle of God. I don't go to Bible class anymore. I've been to church all my life. I don't need that stuff. I don't go to church. Pastor never says anything new. I don't go to church. I know the songs. They're old. I don't go to church. The songs are too new. I like the old ones. You, you can slice it whatever way you want. The truth is, when we stop hearing what God's doing, we fill in that void in our bodies, in our hearts, with something else. There's a God-sized hole in every single person on the earth. And you're either going to fill it with God or something else. And man, we get dull of hearing fast. And we'll fill it with other stuff. We'll fill it with an idol. We'll fill it with something that will satisfy the need for identity, the need for growth, the need for maturity. The need for what's going to happen next. Uh, verse 12 and 13 continue in this way. Let's read it to you. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. Now, why does he say you need milk? Because remember, the verse just before in 12 says, because you don't understand the basics. You have to go back to milk, and my goal is to get you to solid food. Now, most parents, like you get excited, yay, now my child's on Remember like, when you move to solid foods? I mean, it's both exciting and challenging. I'm with you. We'll just leave it at that. Uh, but there's this unique thing. It's great when children grow up and can do like what wonderful pivotal milestone in the life of a child. They no longer need your help to change their what? Their diaper. They're growing up. They're taking care of stuff. You got the right here. You're saying, man, I just wish I could stop the milk thing. So I could stop having to clean out curled milk bottles and I could stop all that stuff. I want to move on. But as long as you need it, I'm going to give it to you. I'll be there for you, but I want to get you past it. We have to, as church men and women, realize God wants you to know about Melchizedek. He wants you to know about Levi. He wants you to know about the king of Salem. Why? So you understand Jesus, who he is in his entirety. So when the world bombards you with questions and who is Jesus and you're not ready, be equipped. We come here to celebrate what God's doing so you're equipped for the questions you'll face outside of this place. We're here so you understand fully who Jesus is. Verse 14, but solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Eating solid food, though, isn't always easy. I was not known for my prowess in eating hot dogs as a young child. Or maybe I was known for my problems eating hot dogs as a young child. My mom learned the Heimlich very well because of my prowess in eating hot dogs as a young child. See, sometimes we start taking stuff in, we may choke, we may not know what to do. We need 
This is what a community of faith does for each other, that we would learn, but let's get past the milk. Let's dig down to go deeper. God can handle your questions, but sometimes we're so afraid, well, Pastor, I don't want to ask that, because what if there's no answer? Well, then let's find what God has to say. God is ready for the question, ready for the challenge. Milk's indeed how we begin eating, but we move on. Now, when we move on, we go back to understand the knowledge of good and evil, which is kind of where this passage is going, right? So we're back in Genesis, this idea of knowing good and evil. Look again at the practice that's described here in verse 14. But solid foods for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice. So the life of a Christian is actually one of what? Practice. And some days we do really, really good. And some days the other thing. But we're constantly practicing so we can distinguish between good from evil. How many of you have gotten all your good from evil things right in your life? Okay, some of you are like, get your hand down, Pastor, I know. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Fran, why are you laughing? Of all the families. I'm laughing with you, Fran. Laughing with you. That we remind ourselves to distinguish good from evil. This is something that we practice at. And we as a church understand, guess what? Your great-grandparents never had to deal with Twitter. But you do. So you have to understand how you're going to respond to it. Your great-grandparents never had to deal probably with when a car's catalytic converter goes out. What do you do? You know what they say to you? Yeah, well, you never had to deal with when your horse keeled over because uh, its intestines got bound up because you fed it something poor. Or, you know, yeah, I know. But they had to deal with all these different challenges. It's high time for the church to realize God wants you to engage with the fact that you live on earth. Guess who else lived on earth? Your high priest. Yeah. Your high priest who has passed through the order of Melchizedek who says, I'm stepping into earth so you know you're not alone. So that you know what I'm up to. We jump to the gospel to help us draw to a conclusion what's happening here in Hebrews 5. Jesus writes this. He says, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him. Kind of interesting, isn't it? So we're looking at Hebrews. A letter that's giving us this bridge between the Jewish people and Gentiles drawing together. Jesus said to the Jews who believe, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Where does the truth come from? This book. Unfortunately for many of you, the only time you open this book during the hour of 9.30 to 10.30 on Sunday morning. I know it's not true of all of you. But I'm just sharing, for some of you, you figure, well, you're the trained professional pastor, so you need to give me everything I need in one hour. I'm going to assure you of something. The challenges you face from Satan, the great deceiver, will far surpass what I can give you in one hour. I'm sorry. I wish I could tell you that the enemy we have doesn't have some very serious power in this world. He does. But he has given you a whole congregation of other people. And the joy about this congregation is that I know many of you talk to each other throughout the week, encourage each other, pray for each other, gather in homes, help move things, help get someone when a car breaks down or help someone uh, gather something together, go shopping with one another just to encourage each other because your cousin or mother or neighbor is dealing with something. That's what God wants, and we're going through what? Constant practice. And sometimes when you meet that friend from church, you say the right thing, and they go, man, I'm so glad you're here. And sometimes you go to help them, and you say what? Yeah, that thing you said. And you're still going, why did I say that? But praise God, you might be able through another day to tell him, I 
just trying to help, and I really let you down. <coughs> but God has never let us down. And may we not sacrifice the relationship we have with each other because the Jesus who loves us, the Jesus who's in the order of Melchizedek, which today you're going, this is a cool thing because your high priest is a king of righteousness who lives in a kingdom of peace, a peace that he is bringing to the whole world. Verse 33 and 34 of John 8, they answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. Isn't that kind of interesting? This is John 8. People who say they're Jewish and have never been enslaved to anyone. Anyone Bible class? Does this seem odd to you? Hopefully. Does someone want to shout it out? Egypt. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for bringing up the pretty obvious. Yeah, so it turns out sometimes when people say things in response, they may not be saying something that's truthful. Or they don't understand fully what happened. Or they just thought enslavement meant something else. Yeah, they've been enslaved. They continue, how is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answers them, truly, truly, I say to you, anyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. But we're set free. See, we're set free in Christ to move forward. We close with these verses. The slave does not remain in the house forever. Kind of an interesting thing we don't always think about. Uh, but a slave who's brought into a house isn't, isn't actually there forever. Many times they're there, and sometimes they move on, or they go somewhere else. You have to kind of detach. This is the great challenge of, of any time we talk in a text like this in the North American context, in the United States of America. You've got to understand, what we experience in slavery is atrocious and worse than anything they experienced in the first century. This is a blemish that will stick with our nation for a very, very, very long time. So when you see the word slave, you bring in 1860, 1850, 1840. I know we do. But I'm sharing with you this idea here, the slave is not running the house. Slave is a different, more full body. They were caring for them, providing homes and others. And that's very hard. So I'm just, I, sometimes people get hung up on it. And I know I'm like sidebarring on it, but you've got to realize, you've got to read the context of what's happening here. That's what John knows in John 8. John 8 does not know the experience of the United States of America and the abomination that is what we did to a people group. He writes and says, the slave does not remain in the house, but the son remains forever. You see, if you're walking to the temple, you're there forever. Some of you have sons you're very proud of, right? Some of you have sons you're still praying for, am I right? Yeah. But they're still your wife. And they always will be. Even though you're going, yeah, I pray harder for the one than the other. But I love them the same. You see, when God draws you in to be a son, you're there forever. The son sets you free. You will be free indeed. There is a priest in the order of Melchizedek who came for you. He brings righteousness in his wake, and he comes to you today at this table. He comes to this table and offers his body and his blood for the forgiveness of your sin, that you might be free indeed. Amen.